Does anybody know what you get when you mix sand, soda, lime, and apply intense heat? Anybody? Glass. You get glass. That's the basic recipe for glass. Since its invention about 4,000 years ago, the basic recipe for glass remains the same. Now, we have built on that recipe. Chemists have tinkered with the recipe, adding ingredients to produce specialized products with thousands upon thousands of different applications. From fiber optic cables to uh, smart uh, phone screens to eyeglasses, light bulbs, windows, windshields, microscopes. I mean, glass is everywhere. In fact, just in the short time that you've been awake today, you've interacted with glass in some way. And for many of its uses, regular, everyday, ordinary glass works just fine. It's fine for most applications. But the biggest problem with glass is that it's fragile, right? When the application doesn't require much strength and durability, it's fine. But when glass breaks, it shatters, right? And it shatters into thousands of shards in varying sizes, and all of them are sharp and dangerous, But for other kinds of applications, ordinary glass won't do. For example, when you were driving here this morning, nobody wants their windshield in their car to be made of ordinary glass, right? One teeny tiny pebble shot at the right angle at the right velocity is all it would take to shatter that windshield and injure everyone in the car. For that application, the glass actually needs to be tempered and strengthened. So how do they do it? Well, first, you cut the glass to the desired size. Then someone inspects and examines the glass, trying to find if there's any kind of imperfections, because if there are, it won't work. Then there's sandpaper that's used to sand off and smooth out all of the sharp, rough edges. And after it's washed, it's ready to go into the fire. The glass undergoes a heat treatment process. It's heated to over 1,000 degrees Fahrenheit. And then very, very quickly, a high-pressure cooling uh, system uh, immediately brings the temperature down to quench it so that the outer surfaces of the glass cool much more quickly than the center. And as a result, the center of the glass molecular, uh, on a molecular level remains in tension while the outer surfaces go into what's called compression. And it's that process that gives tempered glass its strength. Ordinary glass will break at 6,000 pounds per square inch for the pressure. Tempered glass can withstand pressures of up to 24,000 PSI. Tempered glass gains its strength and durability by having its imperfections sanded off, going through intense fire, and then quickly, shockingly, being cooled. See, happiness in life is like ordinary glass. It's good, it's great, It has its place in life, but the problem with happiness is it's incredibly fragile. It can be shattered by a harsh word, by your morning commute, the wrong glance. What about a forgotten thank you, a text message with bad news? Happiness can be ruined by eating something you're not supposed to. It's fragile. It's fragile because it's being controlled by external circumstances. And its fragility is wrapped up in the fact that despite our best efforts, we can't control the world around us. 
So the question this morning I want to ask is, how do we temper happiness into something more? Something durable, something that can withstand the pressure of life. How can our pursuit of happiness be tempered and strengthened into the pursuit of joy? See, joy is not primarily about being happy or getting what we want. No, joy is much deeper than that. Joy is different. In fact, joy is the fulfillment of our deepest desires. When that desire is so strong, you'd be willing to endure trial and hardship, pain and suffering to get that desire fulfilled. Why? Because at the end of it is raw, unfiltered joy. In fact, I think joy is something that can only really be experienced and appreciated over time. You need time to experience enough of life to appreciate and get to the depth of joy. So today we're going to see that, that, that like tempered glass, joy is forged through abrasion and heat and intensity. Yet when it's cooled, its strength can, be endure, can endure the pressure of life. We're going to continue in our series this morning, Summer in the Psalms, and we're looking at Psalm 126 today. This is a psalm about joy no matter the circumstances, and it's going to help us answer the question, how do we find joy in a world of sorrow? Psalm 126 will teach us that joy is forged through reflection, requesting, and redemption. So if you're taking notes, those are our three points today. Reflection, requesting, and redemption. So look with me at verse 1 to see how joy is forged through reflection. Look at verse 1. When the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion, we were like those who dream. Then our mouth was filled with laughter and our tongues with shouts of joy. Then they said among the nations, the Lord has done great things for them. The Lord had done great things for us and we are glad. See, the psalmist begins by remembering and reflecting on past seasons of joy when they were delivered out of captivity. He's looking back and remembers when Zion was restored. Now we actually encountered Zion in our psalm last week. Mount Zion was the highest place in Jerusalem, and it was the mountain on which the temple was built. Now, if you've ever been to Colorado and then saw Zion, you would never call it a mountain. Here's why. Mount Zion's only 2,500 feet. But its glory is not in its height, but in the fact that the glory of God dwelt there. It's literally a glorified hill. God's glory brought weight and significance there. See, the temple was the heart of the city, and Zion became synonymous for the city of Jerusalem and even the people of God. So what he's saying is God restored to us, to our city, to the people of God, our joy. Now, we don't exactly know what restoration the psalmist is referring to. There aren't any specific details, but in a sense, we don't need the specificity. Their whole history has been one of captivity and redemption. I mean, you can think about the big ones, like when the Israelites were slaves in Egypt. The Lord heard their cry and delivered them. We can think about the time when Jerusalem was sacked and the temple was destroyed and the people were carried off into captivity in Babylon. And God had promised that after 70 years, he would deliver them and rebuild the holy city. And that's exactly what happened. You can go back and read about it in the Old Testament. And these are some of the major epic moments where Israel experienced this massive restoration. 
And yet this cycle is on repeat. If you read through the Old Testament history over and over, captivity, deliverance, captivity, deliverance, tragedy and triumph on repeat. And the psalmist reflects on God's faithfulness to deliver them and restore them. He said it was like having your wildest dreams fulfilled. It went beyond every expectation. It was more than they could ask or imagine. And when they realized that it wasn't a dream, that it was real, their mouths were filled with laughter. And the laughter turned to song, which is the sound of joy. See, when joy is fully felt, what happens? You can't help but burst into song. To help you feel it, it was like on October 20th, 2004, when the Red Sox came back from being down three to nothing in the ALCS, won four games in a row, which had never happened before, beating the Yankees and ending the curse. If you were in the city of Boston, you could hear the people outside of the Caskin flag and near Fenway screaming and shouting into the night. It was like a dream for them. The restoration was so great that the nations around them even gave them their due. You know what people have said, man, hats off to you, man. That is amazing. Even people who hated the Red Sox said, coming back 3-0, that's amazing. The other nations looked at what God had done in their lives and said, the Lord has done great things for them. There's no other way to explain it. So let me ask you this morning, what stands in your way of reflection? What keeps you from being a reflective person? What's the obstacle that prevents us from being reflective people? I think it could be summed up in one word, noise. We live in a noisy, busy, distracted, loud, and hurried world. And if you're an American here today, we are not known for being contemplative people, are we? I mean, people don't travel to America, go back home and say, you know what? Those Americans, they're really a quiet and contemplative people. I mean, you go around, you just see them spending hours reflecting on their life. Of course not. I've been speaking now for about 12 minutes. How many notifications have you already received on your phone? Like, I've received some on my phone up here. When was the last time you took intentional, extra, set-aside time to just sit and reflect on all that God has delivered you from? What have you been, what have you been delivered from that you need to remember? Like, who here has been saved from addiction, abusive relationships, poverty, joblessness, hopelessness, self-obsession, depression, besetting sins like anger and pride? When was the last time our mouths were filled with laughter and our tongues with shouts of joy? We're counting the many deliverances, both the big ones and the small ones that the Lord has done. How has God captured captivity on your behalf? Would your friends and family, your neighbors and networks be able to say about you, the Lord has done great things for you. Is that what fills our mouths? Would those around us be able to marvel at the Lord's hand in our lives? 
See, we're really quick to indict those around us who have forsaken God in their lives. And I can't help but wonder if some of that has to do with the silence of our testimony and the grumbling of our complaints. Come on now. We should be a people who are quick to speak about the many pits that God has pulled us out of. What would happen if we spent time reflecting and recounting the many ways the Lord has restored us and then spoke about that, even sang about that to our neighbors? Would that cause them to rethink their lives? What would our experience of joy be if we spent time reflecting on what God has already done in our lives? I think we miss out on joy just because we don't look and think back on all that God has done. So not only is joy forged through reflection, it's also forged through requesting. Look at me at verse four. Verse four says this, restore our fortunes, O Lord, like streams in the Negev. See, we see the psalmist in need here. He's requesting and asking God to bring restoration again. And he asks for streams in the Negev. See, the Negev is a desert. Like all deserts, it's barren and lifeless. And he's saying right now, our situation is so desperate and dire. It's like living in the desert. We need God. We need you to bring streams of living water. Life cannot exist without water. And he's asking God to make the desert flow with streams that bring life. He's asking that the desert would become a garden. And this is a good lesson for us to learn. You see, we live in the tension of the already and the not let and the not yet. See, Christians, we are a delivered people. It's in our identity. We've been delivered from sin and death and destruction, but you know that you have not been fully and finally delivered yet. See, the old way of saying it is like this, that we've been delivered from the penalty of sin. If you're in Christ, the penalty has been paid for on the cross. But right now, we are even being delivered from the power of sin. You'll see in your life, day by day, you're being transformed from uh, uh, one degree of glory to the other, that the very power of sin is losing its grip on you. The things that were hard for you to resist before, the longer you're in Christ, you find victory over those things. You are being delivered from the, the power of sin. But there's coming a day when we will be delivered from the very presence of sin. Imagine that day. We won't live in a fallen world. You won't live having to fight back the evil and the wicked motivations of your heart. You'll be free, finally, totally, completely And until that final deliverance, we find ourselves in need. Now, if you go back and think about that restoration I talked about earlier when Israel was set free from captivity uh, from, from Babylon and allowed to go back to Jerusalem, that was restoration. But what happened when they got back home? They found a city laying in ruin. There was a generation of people who were left behind, left leaderless and in shambles. There was a generation of people who lived in exile that forgot their identity as the people of God. The walls were torn down. The temple was a pile of rubble. Everything that a society needs, structures and systems, all of it had to be rebuilt. They were delivered, and yet what was their prayer? Lord, intervene. Bring deliverance. Deliver us. Continue what you've started. 
So what are we to do when we find ourselves in need of restoration? We do just like this psalmist teaches us. We ask God to intervene. We ask him to deliver us, to continue what he has started. Now, how can they be so confident that God will respond, hear their prayers, and bring joy again? Here's how they know. God's faithfulness in times past provide his people with confident hope for the future. We are his people and we can ask God to move again. Here's how we know we can go to God in prayer because he's promised it in his word. Look with me at Philippians chapter one, verse six. Paul writes this, I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you, he's gonna bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. That's a promise. You can bank your life on it. Hebrews 4.16, how do we know we can go to God in prayer? Look what it says. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace in, uh, to help in our time of need. You can go to God in prayer. He is not angry at you. He is not frustrated that you're coming to him. He is saying, come, you're my children. Ask me. See, sometimes we miss out on joy simply because we do not ask. The biggest obstacle to our requested joy is our pride. We don't ask because we think much of ourselves. We think we can do it ourselves. We are in a do-it-yourself kind of generation. And we don't want to be indebted to God if he shows up and delivers. Now we owe him. And we feel like we want to be independent. We don't ask because we think we can handle it all ourselves. Now, there's some other ones in here who don't ask because you don't think that you matter to God. You think, why would I even bother him with my little problems? He's got so much else going on in the world. You don't think you deserve God's attention and his love. Now, you may be asking, well, how is that pride? It's pride because it's self focused. See, that's the essence of pride. It's still looking to yourself to be the solution to your own problems. And it denies what God says about your worth to him. See, if God says, you matter to me, you're worthwhile to me, you're valuable to me, when we say, no, God, I'm not, we're conflicting. We're, confront we're confronting God's truth and saying, no, I know what's right. See, ultimately, pride is about doing it alone and doing it your way. Whether that's the confident way or whether that's the self-loathing way, you're still choosing your own way. Whether you do it because of an overinflated sense of self or an underinflated sense of self, it's still self-focused. It's the essence of sin, this self-saturation. So what's our solution? The Psalms say, look up, look up, look at God. That's what all of the Psalms of Ascent have been telling us. Look to God. He is our ever-present help in our time of distress. We are missing out on singing the songs of the redeemed simply because we won't ask him and we won't trust his perfect timing and his response. Joy is found and it's forged when we will swallow our pride and ask God for help. 
But not only is joy forged in reflecting and requesting, but the last verses tell us that joy is forged through redemption. Look with me at verse five. Those who sow in tears shall reap with shouts of joy. He who goes out weeping, bearing the seed for sowing, shall come home with shouts of joy, bringing his sheaves with him. The psalmist has requested help, and then he starts speaking truth to himself. Now, this is really important. Martin Lloyd-Jones, who was a famous surgeon-turned-preacher, wrote in his book on spiritual depression, he said, the trouble with Christians is they listen to themselves when they should talk to themselves. Here's what I mean by that. We allow ourselves to listen to the lies instead of taking those thoughts captive and speaking truth to ourselves. And that's exactly what this psalmist is doing. Instead of wallowing in self-pity, he starts to speak the truth that he stored up in his heart. Instead of letting the weight of the situation crush him and own him, he starts speaking truth to himself. So what does he say? Well, first, in God's economy, he's saying what's sown in tears is raised in joy. In this metaphor, we are farmers. We're planting seeds. And he's saying we're actually watering those seeds with our tears, right? If you're in the desert, there's no water. But what's sown in parched land becomes life-giving with our tears. And there's this truth that there's coming a day when we will come back to what's been planted those seeds that have been sown in blood, sweat, and tears that will be harvested and reaped with joy. That is truth. That's speaking truth to yourself instead of wallowing in self-pity and the pain of the situation. See, now there's this destructive myth that just won't die in Christianity. I mean, I have tried to debunk it week after week after week, and yet we still hear it come up. Here's the myth. It goes like this, that if I'm a good little boy or girl, if I'm a good Christian, then God will never let anything bad ever happen to me. Anyone ever heard that said to you? Everyone ever believed that? It's okay, we can admit that. And actually, it's worse than a myth. It is an outright lie from the pit of hell. Now, we don't know what this particular person's going through, but again, we don't have to know. We know what it's like to be in a situation where it feels like we're sowing in tears. We know what it's like to feel like we're in the desert. But you know what I love about this psalm? There's no indication whatsoever that he's in this situation because of his sin or something that he has done. Now, sure, everybody sins every single day. We act with wrong motives. We have impure thoughts. But the point here is that there's no glaring sin revealed. There's no major issue brought to light. No confession of sin, no admission of guilt, no request for pardon. You see that other times in the scriptures for sure. But right now, he's in the desert and it seems like it's not because of his fault. And that's so important for us to know. We will go through seasons in the desert, not because of something we've done. Listen to this. We will go through seasons in the desert because a good and loving God who is all wise has determined that this Desert wandering is necessary in order to forge in you a particular joy that couldn't be forged any other way. It's tempering. It's strengthening. It's simply your time in the furnace. 
It's time to go from ordinary glass to tempered glass. It's time to undergo the pressure of quenching. It's actually a time for you to transform. When things go wrong in our life, we too quickly assume it's because we're being punished for something we did wrong. Now, let me say this. Sometimes that's true. Sometimes things are going wrong and it's sinful, foolish decisions. That's a valid point, but not always, not every time. The truth to learn here is it's not always the case. Now, how do I know that's true? Look at Jesus. He was perfect, sinless. He did what he was supposed to do every time, and he never did what he wasn't supposed to do. He lived with perfect motives, with a perfect mission. His methods and ethics were flawless. And he experienced tears. He experienced pain. He experienced hardship. See, he was the perfect human, and yet he experienced pain. The perfect human heart is actually one that feels. The perfect human heart is soft and vulnerable. I would take it so far to say that we often don't experience the pain we should because we're hard and calloused, and we've built up defense mechanisms so that we never experience pain. See, our God is comfort, and we do everything we can to never experience discomfort or pain. In fact, in the Bible, conversion, which means becoming a Christian, setting aside your old life and becoming something new, is often pictured as God taking out of you this heart of stone and giving you a heart of flesh. A heart of flesh is more aware and more alive to the suffering of the world than a heart of stone. Listen to how Tim Keller says it. He says, when the gospel changes your heart, your heart becomes more of a heart. It gets softer. It gets more vulnerable. It gets more touchable. In other words, you feel the evil and pain around you and the pain of the people who are victims of evil, and you feel a grief over the evil in a way that you didn't before. You feel the things around you that before you just didn't. See, that's why Jesus was described as a man of sorrows who was acquainted with grief. He not only experienced suffering directed at him, but he felt the suffering of others around him. Jesus lived the perfect life and he experienced tears. So why shouldn't we expect to feel the same? So the question is, how do we find redemptive joy in our tears? How do we sow our tears so that they result in joy? What does it mean practically for us to redeem our tears for joy this morning? I want to suggest two things to you. First, if you're writing notes, write this down. It means process your tears. Don't deny them or deify them. Let me unpack that. Process your tears. Don't deny them or deify them. See, a heart of flesh needs to process pain and not become hardened by it or captivated by it. Now, in this room today, there are going to be two types of people who are prone to one side or the other. The first is religious people. Now, religious people tend to stuff their feelings. In fact, they're even uncomfortable with the talk of feelings, right? When, it, when people start talking in here and clapping and moving, the religious people go, uh-oh, what's happening? 
right? We, religious people want to deny the depth and power of feelings. They tend to be stoic and say, tears? What tears? I don't cry, I pray. They deny the pain and emotion, but don't deny it. Tears are real, sorrow is real, and it happens. But we're so quick to numb and distract ourselves that we never feel pain. But in God's economy, pain is never wasted. It's producing a weight and glory in us. Scripture talks about how suffering changes and transforms us like purging and forging fires. Just like metal that is purified and made stronger through the fire, suffering is the crucible for character and transformation. Now, there's also another group of people in here. We'll call them the secular people. They tend to believe that the discovery and experience of feelings is an end in and of itself. The experience is king. And so that once they've experienced or felt something, it actually becomes sacred. There's a sense in which their feelings can't be debated or questioned. You ever have one of those conversations where you're, you're trying to interact with that and they're like, no, no, you can't, you can't ask me those questions. I felt that it was real. There's no way that it was wrong at all. They'll say things like, well, those are my feelings and I have to go with my feelings. Instead of denying their feelings, they deify their feelings. They make them like a God in their life. Here's what I mean. When suffering and pain is deified, it becomes your ultimate definition but it can't become the primary way that you identify yourself. When you identify yourself by your pain, it becomes your God. It defines you. That's what what gods do. They define what they create, right? They create something and then now they name it. See, if God is your God, then what you are is what he says you are, a son or a daughter. But if tragedy and pain is your God, then you are what it says you are. You now identify yourself as the disabled, the depressed, the detained, the disgraced. And when something names you, it owns you. See, to bow to your feelings or to stuff your feelings, to be overawed by your feelings or to be under aware of your feelings, either pole is dangerous. This Psalm teaches us to do neither one of those things. This psalm does not say to deny your feelings or vent your feelings, but it says to process your feelings. How does he do it? He prays. He prays his deepest feelings. If you read through the psalms, you're going to find emotion unfiltered and raw as the psalmist prays to God their deepest feelings. Bring them to God and process them with him. I'll be honest with you. I'm a pastor church, I've got seminary degree, masters, all that, been following God for um, quite a while now. This one is very, very hard for me. It's hard for me to be vulnerable with God. I've got deep father wounds and intimacy with God the Father has always been a struggle. And maybe that's you this morning and you need to know that's okay. That's okay that that confessing and and saying the deepest parts of you to God may be new um, ground for you but I want you to know that he's safe. You can go to the father. Going back to the farming illustration, the psalmist is rehearsing that redemptive truth that we can't stuff seeds away in a closet and hope for a harvest, right? If you bury your emotions, if you stuff those seeds, you're never gonna reap that joy. 
At the same time, we can't idolize them either, right? We have to be willing to put them in the ground. Merely expressing our emotions doesn't do anything. We have to plant them with direction and intention, right? You can't walk out into the middle of the field and just dump a whole bag of seed and expect to get a harvest. Nor can you just bury your seed and keep it in the storehouse. You have to plant the seeds. And that's what the psalmist is instructing us to do. Our tears are an opportunity for fruitfulness and growth. And our tears become the water that sprout and sustain those seeds of joy. So when sorrow comes, go out planting, go out processing, water it with your tears and the result will be joy. And I know that sounds so counterintuitive, doesn't it? We simply just don't connect our joy with our sorrow, but that's the truth we're learning about here. People who process their pain as they go through sorrow and loss, what do you find in them? You find that they become deep, rooted, and grounded people. See, if you deny your pain or deify your pain, you will eventually become a shallow, hardened, and therefore brittle person. But when you allow the time and the vulnerability to water the seeds with your tears, you'll find that God brings a depth to you and a joy to you that is beyond imagination. See, joy is a weighty thing, and we need to be forged in order to rightly handle it and experience it. Another way to think about it is joy comes with weight, and we've got to become a strong and stable person in order to hold it up. Family, hear me. It is safe to process your pain and pour out your deepest feelings with God. Our pain does not belong buried deep down inside our heart where we refuse to admit it. I'm all for talking with friends, and I think you should. I'm all for going to counselors, but ultimately where your tears belong is not managed and packaged and manicured. Our deepest emotions and pain are meant to be processed in the presence of God. That's the first way to sow your tears to reap joy. The second one is this, have perspective. So if the first one is process, the second one is perspective. We have to look beyond the horizon. This psalmist promises us that our tears will eventually give way to joy. And what's beautiful in this psalm is that it teaches us that joy doesn't merely just come after a season, but that our tears actually water the ground and produce the harvest of joy. When we plant in tears, joy is the result. Listen to what Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 4 and verse 17. He says, For our momentary light affliction is producing for us an absolutely incomparable eternal weight of glory. Did you catch what he said? That word producing means to bring it about. We're not just waiting for pain to go away, but when we're sowing in tears, it's actually producing. Something is happening. It's achieving something for us. It's glorifying us. It's changing us. It's bringing a joy of, of harvest into our hearts. I'll say it another way. The kind of joy that you really need, the kind of joy the Bible talks about is the kind of joy that is the product of tears. Suffering produces weight and glory. People who come through the other side of suffering have a depth to them, a groundedness to them, a joy with them. 
Renewal and redemption in your life will bring joy. Now, we may not see it at first, right? Again, think about the analogy. When you plant a seed, you don't see what's happening beneath the surface, do you? You don't immediately see the results. It takes time. But the promise from the scriptures today is this, that what is sown in the desert in tears will become a garden. Look what Isaiah 35 verse one says. The wilderness and the dry land will be glad. The desert will rejoice and blossom like a wildflower. It will blossom abundantly and will also rejoice with joy and singing. What does it mean to sow in tears? It means to have a perspective of what's coming, not narrow-minded hopelessness. God has promised to wipe away every single tear and eventually everything will be made new. I like how John Calvin said it, commenting on this psalm. He said this, God not only will wipe away every tear from our eyes, but he will also diffuse inconceivable joy in our hearts. There's coming a day when he will wipe away every tear, but until that day comes, God is faithful and he promises to put joy in our hearts as we're changed through seasons of tears. And you can trust him to wipe away those tears and and diffuse joy into our hearts because of what the writer in Hebrew says in chapter 12. We'll have the words on the screen here. The writer says this, look to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame and is seated at the right hand of God. You see, after Jesus wept and prayed in the garden, he set his heart on joy that his suffering would produce for us. He sowed tears and blood into the ground. And what happened? He was raised with joy. His body was put into the ground, sown into the ground like a precious seed, but it was raised with the harvest of resurrection. What did he do in that garden? He processed his pain and his tears with God. And he had the perspective to trust the father's plan. And in the end, what was sown in tears was raised in joy. We can trust Jesus because he has gone before us. He wept for us. He suffered for us. And now he lives for us. So family, put your trust in him. Fix your eyes on him. And when you do, your tears will never be wasted. Joy will be our harvest. Let me pray.